Hi, you're listening to the Blues Hall of Fame podcast, where we bring you the rich life histories of the incredible men and women enshrined in the Blues Hall of Fame. Innovators, pioneers, entrepreneurs, geniuses. These are the individuals who not only shaped blues music, but paved the path for all forms of American music that followed. The Blues Hall of Fame podcast is brought to you by the Blues Foundation. For more information about the Blues Foundation, go to blues.org. We continue the series with the world's first international blues superstar, Alberta Hunter. Alberta Hunter was a singular talent. Born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, she began her professional singing career at age 11. By her late 20s, she was fronting orchestras led by King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, and had written Downhearted Blues, a massive hit for Bessie Smith. In the height of Jim Crow and years before women in America had secured the right to vote, Alberta Hunter became the world's first blues superstar by taking her talents to Paris and London, where she was received and revered as royalty. Here is her story. Alberta Hunter sat across the hospital room from my bed. She looked old, slender, and positively vital. She wore her hair straightened and tied up in a braided crown. Gold hoop earrings matched her thin gold bracelets that jingled as she pointed a long red fingernail at me. I've never had no blues about no man in my life, honey, Alberta said. She sat relaxed, her legs crossed, her eyes twinkling. And I've seen them all, she chuckled. Indeed, as I'd find out, in Memphis, W.C. Handy, marched past her house on Beale Street. In Chicago, she sang in a gangster cabaret with King Oliver and Louis Armstrong backing her up. In New York, she sang on records with Fats Waller behind her. In London, she shared the stage every night for a year with Paul Robeson. Alberta even performed during Britain's celebration for the coronation of King George VI. And then she walked away from it, exited stage right, left no forwarding address. For the next 17 years, she worked as a nurse in this hospital and scarcely spoke of her previous life. That's what she was doing in my room, on her night off, no less. I'd gotten rushed to the hospital a few days back with a burst appendix. I woke up from surgery and saw this little old lady in neatly starched whites beside the bed. And when she hummed a tune, she swung like a whole band. I told her how I dig the blues. She chuckled. Alberta took special care of her patients. She kept everyone on clean, dry sheets in clean, fresh clothes. She snuck us extra food and Coca-Colas. One night, I raged with fever, and she smuggled in an old remedy. She crushed up jimson weed and peach tree leaves, mixed them with vinegar in a sink. She soaked a handkerchief in it and laid that across my eyes. It smelled like socks, but Alberta's cool touch and attention settled me down. My grandmother cured my headache with this, Alberta said. She bathed me in a zinc washtub and traced the three moles on my foot. She told my mama, this one's a wanderer. That was the first I'd heard of Alberta's life. She had me hooked. Come on up some night, my castle's rocking. No modern medicine or ancient superstition made me feel better than listening to her. I soon figured out I had a legend on my ward. 
One sunny afternoon in Chicago, young Alberta went for a drive with a piano player named Lovey Austin. Lovey was a take-charge kind of person. She had escaped from Tennessee and totally remade herself in Chicago, renamed herself and everything. Now she led her own band. Lovey had men working for her. Lovey had the interior of her car upholstered in leopard skin to match her riding clothes. Alberta never learned to drive, and Lovey drove like she hadn't been taught. Lovey clasped a cigarette between her teeth, sat back cool and calm, and flew. Alberta got nervous and started singing, making up words to put her mind somewhere else. Gee, but it's hard to love someone when that someone don't love you. I'm so disgusted, heartbroken too. I got the downhearted blues. Lovey said, oh, that's wonderful, honey. So Alberta tossed out another rhyme. Got the world in the jug, stopper in my hand. And if you want me, you must come under my command. Now that line had to be written by a woman who never got the blues from a man. Downhearted Blues officially was Alberta and Lovey's, but it became a classic thanks to another lady from Tennessee, the song practically made Bessie Smith. Back in the hospital room, Alberta said, I laugh when I read these little books about the blues. I don't recall seeing them blind boys with their guitars up on stage with me in Oslo or Stockholm. She began to trail off her heightened effect. Copenhagen, London, the Palladium, Paris, Cairo. Maybe I'm just getting old. I was back in the 20s and 30s, baby. <sighs> I didn't see them white boys with me on Broadway. That's why I sang the blues. I never heard of any of them until these little white boys started writing the history of the blues. I asked her if she deserved a bigger part. I've been under too much scrutiny in my life, baby. It ain't worth it. My privacy means everything. As my days in the hospital wore on and our conversation deepened, I figured out why she had never had the blues about a man. Her first true love was named Lottie. They met in Chicago at one of those all-night cabarets with Louis Armstrong and King Oliver blowing. Lottie invited Alberta to visit her in New York and jotted down the address. Alberta soon showed up at Lottie's home. The place was a mansion, probably the biggest in Harlem. Alberta marched up to ring the bell. The front door opened, and there stood Lottie's uncle, Bert Williams, only the most famous black entertainer in the world. Lottie here? Alberta asked. Mr. Williams walked away without speaking, but left the door open a crack. It all happened fast, like real, true love. Alberta and Lottie bought an apartment together on 148th Street up Sugar Hill. To make it official, the last thing Alberta needed to do was tell her mama. Mama, Miss Laura, had no real problems with people living differently. Miss Laura used to work in Memphis on Gayoso Street washing clothes in a body house. She said everything she knew about manners and social nicety came from those sporting women. Miss Laura didn't judge. Until she got to Sugar Hill. Miss Laura barely took one step into her daughter's apartment. She had traveled by train from Chicago, but saw Lottie and turned right back around. I don't like New York, she told Alberta. 
but Miss Laura soon came back for good. Her husband died, leaving her without a provider. She needed me, and I made enough money to take care of her, Alberta said. Looking after Mama meant I had no choice but to live my life on the go. We already faced discrimination from being black, then our family's disapproval. I couldn't portray my true self on stage. There was no escape. The secret kept me on the run. I got a mind to ramble, ooh, but I don't know where to go. No man ever gave Alberta the blues, but still, she had them. She and Lottie obtained passports and set sail across the Atlantic. Their old friend, Bricktop, from the early nights in Chicago, set up a club in Paris. Brick came from West Virginia and could be as crude and dirty as an old coal miner, Alberta told me. Brick would call from the street into my window, what you witches doing up there? Except she didn't say witches. Not only did French people worship blacks, but our private life was nothing to hide. In Paris, we took on the flavor of Paris. We felt at ease in cafe society as well as in the joints where the waitresses picked up their tips without using their hands. Alberta corresponded with all the black papers to describe the race situation throughout the world for folks back home. She leaked back word of a romance, an engagement to a baron. I asked her about him. A total fabrication, honey. We needed a divorce in the background to keep people from talking. Being engaged to a fairy tale prince did the same thing without hurting anyone. Just a little slickology. The only problem she and Lottie faced was that no one on the continent knew how to do black hair. That was the only problem until Hitler came. The U.S. government required its citizens on temporary work visas to return to America. Bricktop barely got out before France fell to the Nazis. Their friend Josephine Baker stayed and joined the underground resistance. Alberta did the next best thing. She signed on with the USO. She spent much of the next decade until the end of the Korean War, flying from battle zone to battle zone, strapped to a parachute in a bumpy, noisy troop transport. She gave the boys her all, or her almost, anyway. Some nights, she stepped on stage in freezing temperatures, soldiers holding their flashlights to illuminate her. She wore her tightest, most shimmering gown, no overcoat and nothing underneath. Everyone sacrificed in the war, she laughed. Those boys might get killed the next day. Not long after she returned to New York for good, Miss Laura passed away. When she died, I could finally live how I always wanted, settle down to regular life with my loved ones. Alberta's generosity and trust lifted my spirit even as the pain and swelling in my abdomen got worse and my temperature jumped and dropped. She never once asked me to keep quiet. Didn't she know I could turn the spotlight back on her, tell the world she was a star, share her true story? Finally, I had to ask, are you worried I'm going to get out of here and tell your secret? She looked at me with pity. I said, I mean, that's your deathbed confession. She said, yeah, honey, but this ain't my deathbed. Look what the sun has done to me. 
Thanks for listening to the Blues Hall of Fame podcast, brought to you by the Blues Foundation. The Blues Hall of Fame podcast is produced by Bill Street Caravan for the Blues Foundation, written by Preston Lauterbach and voiced by Guy Davis. For more information on the Blues Foundation, go to blues.org.